listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by Paladin, the premier technology provider for next-generation media companies. The Paladin platform automates mission-critical functions, from creator management and payments to business intelligence and campaigns. Visit paladinsoftware.com to learn more or request a product demo. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Cenk Uger, founder and host of the world's largest online news show, The Young Turks, and CEO of the TYT Network. Cenk, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I, I love this site. You know why? Because I like talking about myself. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't, right? No, in all seriousness, I'm super passionate about the business, not just yeah. the business, but the industry. So thanks. Thanks for having me. Of course. My pleasure. You're widely known as a man of strong opinions. So I wanted to kind of start by asking, what is something that you believe strongly that other people might think is completely insane? Oh, <laughs> great question. Uh, many things is the beginning answer. All right, I mean, we can do different ranges, right? So let's do politics first. So I believe that a really strong progressive that very few people have heard of will be the next president of the United States. So for example, uh, Nina Turner, who is now the head of Our Revolution, which was Bernie's group. I've mentioned her name in, in New York and Washington circles, among other journalists, and they say, you're insane. <laughs> and you're going to have this on the record. Sure. And so three years from now, you can go back and go, oh, my God. That, I thought he said Nina Turner. He did say <laughs> Nina Turner. Okay. And we've had dark horse candidates before, but what about Nina or what about an unknown progressive candidate makes you think that's going to be the case? So this ties in perfectly to the industry because there is this enormous movement that is still to this day way underestimated. And the movement is towards authenticity. And it's true in media. It's true in politics. But the reason why it's underestimated is because there, there's the greatest cultural divide we've ever had in this country's history right now. And it is not based on race, it's not based on ethnicity or gender, it's based on age. So if you're under the age of 35, you grew up on the internet. Mm -hmm. If you're above the age of 35, you grew up on TV. Now, those are two totally different cultures. Uh, media is culture. So if you grew up on TV, you're used to uh, superficial coverage based on complete phoniness. Okay, now I'm in that category, don't get me wrong, okay, I'm 47, right? And I know that that sounds a little insulting, but let me explain why that's the case. People on TV read from prompters. Uh, almost none of the anchors actually produce their own content. I was on cable news for many years, I know. Some of them don't even read it before they get on. They're not news anchors, they're news actors. So, but that is, that I'm in the news vertical, so I know that better, but it's also true, obviously, of everything else, including the ads. Very glossy, very polished, very fake. No one believes that those people are actually doing those things or mean any of it. Everyone is an actor. Now, turn to the online generation. Their culture is one built purely on authenticity. There's a guy sitting in his living room, and he's got no prompter, he can't afford one, he is telling you things as he actually believes them. I know it's real because that is actually his bedroom and his stuffed animals behind him. Okay. Or her. Mm -hmm. Right. And plus people online can look things up. My generation, when we had to look things up, we had to drive to a thing called the library, use a thing called the Dewey Decimal System. And that was just for books. If you wanted to actually look up research, news, you had to use this thing called microfiche. We are dinosaurs. We had access to almost no information. The younger generation has access to the entire world's information at their fingertips. They're, of course, they're not smarter. We're all humans. We're all homo sapiens, right? But are they more knowledgeable? Absolutely way more knowledgeable. So when you take a cohort that is more knowledgeable and cares a lot more about authenticity, and you have it run smack dab into a culture that is the exact opposite, you're gonna have massive disruption. You're gonna have it in media, you're gonna have it in politics. So the number one question I used to get in 2016 was, who in the world is Bernie Sanders and why do young people like him so much? What does Bernie Sanders have? Huge authenticity, 
And you can look up all of his positions. And he's had the same positions for 40 years. So when the TV guys talk in generalities, the young people want to vomit. Like, oh, hey, hey, Martin O'Malley's got really nice suits. Who cares? Because, but on TV, people will talk about O'Malley or Hillary might look like a politician, looks like a president. Chris Matthews cannot stop talking about superficiality. Yeah. Back in the Bush years, he used to talk about how, oh my God, he's got that. Remember when he had the pilot suit on and he landed on the aircraft carrier? And, and before that, when he was campaigning, he had a cowboy outfit on. And Chris Matthews couldn't contain himself. He was like, oh my God, he looks like such a man. And he's a cowboy and he landed on a thing and he looks like a pilot. This is dress up crap. And the online generation hates that stuff. And hence... When someone like Nina comes up, it doesn't have to be Nina, but she's a great example of it. Uh, she has great authenticity. She actually cares about the issues. And everybody above the age of 35, 45, wherever you want to draw that line, is going to say, no way on Nina. She, we don't know her. She's not a polished politician of yesteryear. They will go and immediately turn off and go, it's not her. It's definitely not her. To this day, they still say, it's definitely not Bernie. Right. I mean, if Bernie runs, he crushes. Him. Sure. I'm, I'm just assuming Bernie's not running. Yeah. If he wants, it runs with his name recognition, with millennials growing every day, baby boomers, you know, hate to tell you what their hat's happening to them. Right. Et cetera. It's not going to be close. So that's the politics. And when it comes to the media, we have a, the audience has already moved. The only thing that is still resistant is advertisers because they are the most conservative people on the planet. They don't want to move. They, they're used to buying from Bob. They know Bob. They go on a yacht with Bob at Cannes. They go to nice parties with Bob. They go to the Yankees game with Bob. And Bob works on TV. And God damn it, whether it works or not, they're going to buy from Bob. Yeah, no one gets fired for buying TV ads during the Super Bowl. That's right. And in fact, they should all be fired for that. Mm -hmm. Super Bowl might be a rare exception, but even so, it's probably grossly inefficient. I once talked to a CMO that advertised with us. Obviously, I'm going to leave out names, okay? And I, we were having lunch, and I, you know, we're diving into the data and how well we're producing for them and the output and then the number of people they've signed up, and we're super in the weeds. And then I pulled back for a second, and I said, you know, I'm curious. I was genuinely curious. Sure. I just didn't know, and this was many years ago. I said, you spend over 90% of your budget on TV, so... How do you do this with TV? And like, I think he got slightly offended because he thought that I was being a jerk about it. I wasn't, I was genuinely curious, like, wait, how do you find these numbers on customer acquisition on TV? And he was like, what do you mean? We don't know anything about our TV audience. I was like, oh my God, oh my God. Like they don't know anything about the TV audience. They have no idea if it exists. They have no idea who it is. And they most certainly do not know if they're buying their product. So while they are insanely vigilant on the digital side, they are totally, remarkably careless on the TV side. Oh, it's inefficient. Well, and then I asked them, what, wait, then, what, why? Why are you spending 95 or 98% of your budget on TV? He said, oh, you have to. And CMOs, I don't know if they've caught up recently, but certainly three years ago, two years ago, not the number one answer, almost the only answer I would ever get is, you have to. What the hell does that mean? That doesn't mean anything. It's just so ingrained. I always tell people that Nielsen and Comscore are the lie that we all just agreed to believe one day. Yeah. But even if even if Nielsen nailed it, and those are the actual numbers... You don't have visibility in what they do offline. Are they going in and purchasing? Are they converting to customers? How engaged are they? Exactly. Yeah. A, it's a black box. You have no idea if they're actually converting to customers. So on, online, they're like, no, if I don't hit my $47.50 customer acquisition cost, you're gone, right? Well, dude, you're getting the branding for free. You're getting XXX, right? No, 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 no. Okay. Now you go to TV. What's your customer acquisition cost? I have no freaking idea. I don't care. I'm never going to get fired for buying TV. You should all be fired for buying TV. Horribly, disastrously inefficient. I know. I advertise, right? If somebody told me I should advertise on TV, I'd laugh them out of the room. I said, on what basis? Where, where's my return on investment? You prove me a return on investment and I'll put money into TV. Sure. No one can do it. 
So for a lot of for long years, you know, maybe over a decade now, people have been saying that the eighty billion dollars in ad spending on TV in the U.S. each year is slowly going to start to move over to digital. And I've always been very skeptical of that, saying it's not going to take away money from TV. We're just seeing digital budgets grow as overall ad spending increases. What's your take on that? Do you think it's going to shift over, or is it just a separate category? I've been to digital parliaments where, obviously, again, leaving out names, where there was consensus in the room that we have to wait out for all the ad executives to be fired. Keeping it real. Yep. I mean, it is that stark. And, and it and, comes back to that generational divide, right? Yes, yeah. that's right. Because they can't, it doesn't compute. They can't, no matter how much they see the data, both in the terms of media and in terms of advertisers, they don't understand the internet. They don't believe in it. In their heart of hearts, in their DNA, they don't believe in it. They think it's for kids. They think it's for cats, and and they snicker at it. I'm all right. I'll, I was going to get harsher, but I'll just leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> well, I was going to say maybe ten years ago they they weren't too far off, but it's changed so fundamentally. And you know, it changes every week, right? Just staying in the cycle. And there there is a gap right now for older content. I think we're starting to see that service by Facebook and by content creators like you who are serving a broader audience. But you know, if you are forty five plus, fifty five plus, there's not a lot of content in digital for you these days. It's getting a little bit better with the OTT because yep. the lean back experience is leading to older demos and they feel more comforted by that. And God bless, we do great in lean back experience because we build shows that are both long form and short form and the long form is just like TV. So when we go on to Pluto, you know, we, we do great in 45 plus. Uh, in Facebook, our demos are older, even though that's shorter in a sense, but we're, they're comforted by our format. So... But I'll tell you when, you know, to go back to the earlier question for one more second yep. as it relates to this as well, is the people that I thought would be most resistant are actually in the transition to digital are now beginning to be at the forefront, partly accidentally, partly because they are more market driven. And those are politicians. So I remember talking to their consultants, political consultants back in 2014, Democrats got killed. I gave them advice of, you should do a lot more digital. They laughed. They Maybe they thought it was self-serving. Fair. Okay. Mainly, they're old souls in Washington. Even if they're 25, they act like they're 85. And then they would say, no, what are you talking about? If we have remnants left, we give it to digital. <laughs> and, and so what happened to make the change? Number one, Trump happened. Hillary outspent him at least two to one, but he put most of his money into digital and rocked her world. So number two... Finally, it is getting through their thick skulls. If you're in a district in Connecticut and you're spending money in the New York television market, you are out of your mind. It is hitting, you know, what? You're getting like an 11% efficiency in your narrow district in Connecticut. You're wasting 89% of the money. Yeah. When you could super target on digital, anyone who spends money in Connecticut house race on TV should immediately be fired. Yeah. And they're beginning to see that. You know why? Because there's a free market. You either win your race or you don't win your race. And so it is immediate results. And next time you better adjust. I just talked to a congressman who's running for the Senate in Texas. Mm -hmm. uh, he's got a great chance of beating Ted Cruz. His name is Beto O'Rourke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I just interviewed him uh, earlier this week and he said, He's mainly going digital with his ads, even though it's a giant state still going digital because mm -hmm. it's way more efficient. Well, I think, you know, with Trump, he already knew he was going to get the TV play, right? He had great name recognition. He was doing enough incendiary things in the superficial existing broadcast television complex. He was going to get played on TV. Yeah. So, you know, it's the reason I brought up politics is one, because they're moving right now and they're mm -hmm. in the middle of that move. And number two, it's because it's a microcosm of what's happening in the advertising world that we were just talking about. Instead of waiting for older executives who are getting it wrong to get fired, the congressman or senator who gets it wrong immediately gets fired. <laughs> right? Yeah. And then the next person has to figure out in the next election, okay, wait, what lessons do I learn from that? Because I don't want to be fired, which is going to happen in this next election. So let's go back in time and learn a little bit more about your entry into news and politics and also into the online video space. How did you find your way into this industry? So I was a lawyer for about half a second, uh, lasted about seven months. I hated it. Uh, in the meanwhile, I went and took a seminar on how to start your own TV show, which is preposterous. But back in the day, pre-YouTube, pre-internet, it was public access. 
So I went and did a Wayne's World type of show. I did my first episode October 30th, 1995, and instantly fell in love with it. I'm just like, look, right or wrong, successful or unsuccessful, this is what I'm doing the rest of my life. So that's 95. By 98, I already had an excellent sense that I was going to do online video. So at that point, online video is really nascent, but I fancy myself logical. <laughs> we'll see if time proves me right. But, you know, and then on air, you a lot of folks see my passionate side. And so people think that that's, that means you're not logical. No, no, no. I, I, I hope that I, I live and breathe logic. And so as I looked at it, I thought, well, TV is one way. It's a technologically deficient device. You can't talk back to it. Online video clearly allows for interaction, which is two-way. So given, and, and my God, people are putting video on and it's free. They don't need a billion dollars in infrastructure. So how in the world can the TV guys compete when their costs are so high and the other guys' costs are so low, there's no gatekeepers, which allows for the free market to decide what good content is. And then you have the other market force that I alluded to. When you put all that stuff together, I was, I was convinced that in, in 98 that online video was going to topple uh, TV. And so, by the way, there's plenty of things I'm wrong about. Of course, right? And, and the number one thing I'm often wrong about is timing. Uh, so I thought it would happen way quicker than it did. And so when we, long story about I worked in TV as a writer, as a producer, on air, et cetera, but got back into doing my own talk shows when we started The Young Turks in 2002. But the whole and time, that was all pre-YouTube. So what online video platforms were using in the late 90s, early 2000s? So we weren't because okay. it just wasn't ready. Got it. Okay. Right. The market wasn't ready. We weren't ready. We didn't have the money. We didn't know. We didn't have the know-how. And I'm sitting in a diner in LA with, in 2005. And I tell a friend of mine, Jim Gilliam, hey, I had this vision back in 98, <laughs> seven years ago that online video and I already have a show and I'd love to bring... It's on radio, it's on Sirius Satellite Radio, but I'd love to also do it on online video. And I thought Jim was just a friend through progressive political circles. I didn't know that he was a tech genius. He wound up being the founder of Nation Builder. He was like the CTO of Lycos at I think age 23. So I didn't know who I was sitting next to. And he's like, oh, online video. I could literally set that up for you tomorrow. I was like, really? And he's like, yeah. So I went and immediately switched offices. We were in a tiny, tiny office we used for our radio show. I bought a, I rented a slightly larger office across the street. And I said, all right, Jim, we're ready. Where do we put the cameras and how do we connect it to this, to the internet? And he came in and he showed us how, uh -huh. boom, we were on there. And now we're so old. We're like, you know, you know, we're literally the longest running stream on the internet, which is kind of amazing, right? There were streams before us, but they went bankrupt. So we're the longest lasting stream. And what gave you that staying power? There's a couple of reasons for our, what I hope is our success. So one is a cliche, but it's true. And it's not that helpful, but it's like, but it's, it's perseverance. We just wanted it really, really badly. So we raised a small amount of money in 05 because I risked everything to go to online video Sirius wouldn't renew our contract if we were going to do online video because they are a subscription service. So I had to raise money. And that small amount, under a million dollars, lasted us for nine years. Wow. Because we just wouldn't go away. We just hung on by our fingernails, paid ourselves next to nothing forever, uh, got intern after intern who believed in the cause and the idea. And then the second thing was A-B testing. But back then it was called trial and error. So we'd go, we'd put the video on MySpace, it would suck, right? We'd put it on X and Y and Z and it wouldn't work. And then one day our director, Jesus, who's still with us, said, hey, Jank, I put on this thing called YouTube and I think it's popping. Uh, he's like, we should, we should do it more. So we did more YouTube. Then he's like, you know, we got really bad names here. Young Turks, Arrow 1, Segment 2. Nobody knows what that means. Why don't we cut it down to segments? Like when we talk about the Iraq war, or when we talk about taxes or, or Kim Kardashian's ass, whatever it is. Right. And then we figured out, and you got to remember, this is super early days. We were YouTube's first partner, period. So how did that relationship come about? Through an agent that I had, which I'll talk about in a second, but just to finish the AB testing, <laughs> one day we realized, oh, if you put Kim Kardashian's 
asked on the thumbnail of the story that you're talking about, Kim Kardashian. Boy, that really works, <laughs> right? And so we, and it's the school of keeping it real, yeah. right? And we care, talk about a lot of serious issues and a lot of people know us for that, but I actually genuinely care about sports and entertainment and I don't, I'm with the audience. You care, I care, right? So I don't think that that's lowbrow at all. I think that's also part of the news. How did you, you know, the agent relationship oh, that yeah, introduced yeah. to YouTube? So an agent at William Morris, who doesn't work there anymore, and before it was uh, WME, it was William Morris, called us one day and said, hey, look, I heard you guys are off of Sirius because we went to online video and that. So he's, we were still on and we were broadcast, but we weren't being paid. And he knew a guy in Air America who wanted to hire us. So it's like a perfect agent thing. He's like, I'm going to make money for doing nothing. So can I sign you? And then I will sign you immediately to Air America. And from our perspective, we were like, well, if you're getting us a deal at Air America and we're going to get paid, yes. The answer is yes. So we signed with him and, and he did get us the deal on Air America, which was a layup, but God bless, we'll take it. And then he is like, well, there's, okay, I, now I have you. You're my client. You guys are doing online video. Let me poke around a little bit. And to his credit, he was a rare agent that worked hard. Right? For him. Yeah. And, and he's like, look, YouTube's doing deals. Are you guys interested? We're like, yes, yes. So he worked hard to get us in that first partner batch. And this will give you a great sense of how old we are. And in that partner batch, I don't remember if it was 10 or 20 of us. I really wanted to be first. And I knew what was roughly in the contract. So they sent me the contract. I printed it out, signed it, and faxed it back to them within half an hour so we'd be the first partner. Wow. So the other guys were like giant companies. Sure, They're redlining for months. Right, right, yeah. right, right. I'm like, guys, it doesn't matter. Man. We get paid nothing, right? <laughs> sure. Now we get paid something. Yeah. And Was this part of the original content initiative when they pumped $100 million into Machinima and Austin's TV? Or that no, this came it, earlier than that? No, it was earlier than that. Okay. okay. This is the first time ever that they had partners and they were going to give monetization for monetization. Yes. Okay. And then the $100 million program came a couple of years after. Did you participate in that? Yes. Okay. And we were among, I think, only like four or five partners that participated in the second round of that. That means that worked because, you know, the original, the first original content initiative, they tried to bring a lot of traditional celebrities on the platform, Shaquille O'Neal, Madonna and several others. And, And so some of those projects worked. Many of them didn't. I think they recognized that the homegrown YouTube talent like yourselves and like a lot of the influencer personalities we all know today that's what was performing and really got the bulk of the funding the second time they did it. Yeah, the old school celebrities are soft, right? With the maybe possible exception of Ryan Seacrest, who, who does really work very hard. <laughs> the rest of them are used to coming and going, I'm Shaq, give me a million, 10 million, and an hour later I'm gone. Yeah, I don't want to like that on online. That's no. not the digital world. Yeah. And so they couldn't roll up their sleeves and figure out how to win online. And we were hungrier. That's yeah. why it worked. Yeah. So talk to me about your business today. How much of it is ad driven? You're doing stuff obviously on YouTube and Facebook. How much of it is supported through your premium subscription offering? What does the future look like? Yeah, right now it's about uh, half and half. So subscription is a great business for us. People pay 10 bucks a month. They get all the network shows and overall there's about 30 shows in the network, but about uh, eight that we own and uh, produce ourselves here in our studio in Culver City. And so they get those network shows, the owned and operated shows, ad-free convenience of being able to download it or stream it, audio or video. And then we give extra content for the members. So uh, that's really healthy and it, and it quadrupled last year. So uh, wonderfully growing business. And then you've got advertising on YouTube, Facebook, Hulu, Pluto, Zumo, Twitter, and all the other platforms that we're on. And that's about half. So as you said earlier, you guys have been in this business for years, blood, sweat, and tears to make it happen. What uh, were some of the biggest failures along the way? What were some of those times where it was tough and you had to pick yourself up and keep going? God, there's so many failures, it's hard to keep track. So first of all, the most important thing is being open to failure. That It sounds cool to say op- failure is not an option, but then, then winning is also not an option. Right? You've got to be able to take risk and fail your way to success. But these are, again, at this point, you know, I was, I'm preaching to the choir. In the older days, it was, people believe that less because it was a zero-sum game and you, your TV show or your movie either worked or it didn't work and failure was disastrous and might end your career because it was so binary. 
Whereas the online world is so iterative that no, 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 it's okay. Keep going, keep going. And so in terms of our failures, oh, you know, we tried a million marketing schemes that didn't work, but not money-based, but sure. like PR because yeah. we had no money. Our tech's been a disaster from day one. We barely keep the website up with duct tape. Now we've got a new round of financing. So we've got a great uh, VP of product engineering. They're building out a great website app, user interface, but we didn't have it for 15 years. We would try initiatives and they would flop. I wanted to crowdsource protests. I don't know why this popped into my head. <laughs> and it turns and, and, and get people to figure out what the bankers were doing wrong, blah, 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 blah. Total failure. No one did it. Okay. I, I believed in the, the power of, you know, the internet. And I'm like, we could Wikipedia this thing. It turns out, no, no, you can't Wikipedia this thing. It's but not it's that like easy. Every time you're learning along the way. That's right. And have you always kind of considered yourself an entrepreneur? Is that just in your, your DNA or, you know, how did that happen? Absolutely. So it might literally be in my DNA. I'm Turkish and uh, I saw an article that per capita, Turkey has the most entrepreneurs and it's not even close. Like, wow. Yeah. Number two is like way under Turkey. And my thesis on why that is, is because we were Ottomans. And so everyone wants to be the Sultan. <laughs> <laughs> and so we were the ruling class. And that comes with a lot of downsides, by the way. Okay. But the one upside was everybody thinks they're boss. Like one of the downsides of that is go, good luck driving in Turkey. Everyone thinks that they own the road and everyone else happens to be on there by their good grace. But what it does lead to is a tremendous entrepreneurial spirit. It can do, will do, get out of my way, and I'm the boss. And so when I was leaving MSNBC, there was a little bit of a controversy around that. And I'm trying to decide whether to take their offer, which was doubling my salary. And it was like money I've never seen before. And I'm pacing around my house for hours and days trying to make this decision. And my wife's like, oh, just stop it already. You're Turkish. You're never going to work for anyone else. Okay, you're not going to take their offer. You're going to do the Young Turks like you always have. And so it, in, in that sense. Good but, for her. Yeah, no, yeah, she's so wonderfully supportive. It's amazing. And then the other thing is my dad was an entrepreneur. And he started talking to me about it from when I was a kid. And we, around the kitchen table, he'd ask me for uh, business advice. So from the age of, I don't know, when, 10, 12, etc., I was helping my dad make business decisions. Yeah. And, was, I, and I love it. What was his business? He was real estate. So I'll tell you a quick fun story. In 1991, I'm going to Wharton undergrad. My dad is in commercial real estate. And he says, okay, well, this summer, instead of taking a corporate job, you know, Mr. Big Shaw Wharton, why don't you come over here? I've always wanted to do sheriff sales and, and flip them, et cetera, right? He's like, why don't you figure out how to do that? And then I'll give you X amount of money and then you do it. So like, I don't know anything about that. I don't know the... And he's like, well, that's good, good luck. Go figure that's it out. That's part of being an entrepreneur. That's right. <laughs> and I did it and I loved it. So I figured out how to check the liens. I went to figure out where the Monmouth County courthouse was. We were in, uh, in New Jersey at the time. And I saw all these people checking liens. I was like, I'll give you a hundred bucks if you teach me how to check a lien. And somebody was like, I'll do it. <laughs> right? And then all of a sudden I knew how to check a lien. I figured out like elbow grease on the market uh, price for the houses. I would go check the nearby houses that were for sale. I'd analyze them and get set a mark market price for the house we were going to bid on. We made a hundred thousand dollars in that summer. Uh, we flipped three houses from start to finish in three months. Boom, boom, boom. So sometimes people say, Oh, you know, you host the show. That's probably your real passion is in the business side of pain in the ass. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I love the business. Yeah. Side. It's a wonderful challenge. Yeah. So you moved from Istanbul to New Jersey with your family when you were eight years old. What did the American dream mean for you and your family when you moved? I call my dad uh, the American dream. That's, that's my nickname for him. He has a much better story than I do because he was so successful that it made my story much easier. So he was literally a dirt poor olive farmer in southeastern Turkey near the Syrian border. They had no money. In fact, his father died when he was three months old and they had the debt from his hospital bills. He knows how to literally separate the wheat from the chaff because that's what they would have to do on one of their plots of land. They had tiny, tiny plots of land that they worked. So and this is why I'm a progressive. In Turkey, 
They had one program that made all the difference. If you scored in the top 15%, roughly, in your college exams, you got a free college education. And my dad worked his ass off because my uncle told him, look, you're either going to work your ass off on this patch of land for the rest of your life, and they knew how miserable and hard that was, or you're going to work your ass off in school, and you're going to have opportunities like you've never seen. So my dad, being logical, was like, I got it. Um, he was a terrible student. He flipped over instantly and became a great student, worked his ass off, got into the top engineering school, even though he's terrible at engineering. He's, he's a natural born businessman, but at the time it was more prestigious to be an engineer and easier to get a job, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So he gets that. He stays at his uncle's house in Istanbul, doesn't have to pay money for rent or food. And then he builds his own company in Turkey, sells it, comes here and starts the real estate business in New Jersey. And taught taught us, even though the important a lot of the important parts of that story was in Turkey, my dad, like a lot of immigrants, said, No, 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 I'm an American. Even when he lived in Turkey, he would say, I'm an American. Because it's the American idea that that you can have opportunity, you can make the best of it. And it doesn't mean rugged individualism. It means, I mean, he if his uncle didn't give him the house to live in, he couldn't have done it. If his brother hadn't taught him the way, he couldn't have done it. And the you know, list goes on and on. But we believe we're true believers. So you might have been born in Nebraska, and that's a, just the luck of the draw. But we chose to come here because we believed in this idea. And I chose to become a citizen in 1990 because I love this country. And so far, knock on wood, we've been proven right, and it's given us all these wonderful opportunities. Yeah, that's amazing. When did your fascination with American politics and media come to play? Right from the get-go. Even, I think, as a 10-year-old, my Saturday morning lineup was this. Super Friends, then Wrestling, then the McLaughlin Group. <laughs> <laughs> Quite the diversity. <laughs> yeah. So, by the way, the thing that binds them all together is characters, which is what we build here. Sure. We build characters. Mm -hmm. But I love the McLaughlin Report. Uh, and then on Sundays, every Sunday, I'd watch Meet the Press. And, and, uh, and this week on ABC was my favorite with Kogi Roberts and Sam Donaldson and George Will. And so from day one, I thought it was just absolutely fascinating. I'm like, that's the thing that makes the world go wrong. And, you know, people get frustrated by it. And, and a lot of times it stops the world from going around. But policy is enormously important. So climate change, I can throw away every Coke can I've ever had. And it's not going to make 1% or 1% or 1% difference as a policy change would. And so I was, after law school, I was interned at prosecutor's office and briefly considered becoming a prosecutor because I'm obsessed with justice. But it was just this one person at a time. And policy can bring you justice on a macro scale. And so that's why I love politics. Yeah, so you're looking for the fulcrum. Where can I make the greatest impact? Absolutely, the biggest lever. You know, you've talked a bit about your journey to become a progressive and that line of thinking. And you talked about how, you know, from a policy standpoint, there seems to be a lot of frustration. I think it comes back to this generational divide. What I'm getting at is I think that a lot of younger audiences don't identify with either of the major parties today, right? Yes. Democrats, Republicans, especially during primaries, retreat to their very extreme bases. And a lot of us don't necessarily agree with those ideals. So it seems that to an extent, both of the parties are in crisis right now. Do you think that'll change? And what does that mean for the future of American politics? Do we move away from the two-party system? Is there going to be an evolution in thinking in either of the two camps? What do you predict? Yeah, so there's two different factors at play there. So one is that in the old days, people grew up on teams. They were on Team Democrat or Team Republican, and your whole family was, and it was a tradition. And so if you got off of Team Republican, that was like a big, oh my God, what are you doing? Or vice versa. For millennials, they don't have that at all. They don't care about that tradition. They didn't grow up in that tradition. It's not their culture. So they have no allegiance to any party. And I've been on talk show after talk show where older generation is outraged that we don't have that allegiance. And I'm in that culture. I'm 47, but culturally, I came to this country and I didn't have a preset team, right? You know, so we didn't know what team we were on, so I didn't grow up that way. So I'm always like, I'm puzzled by them and they're puzzled by us. The team, if the team is not doing the things that you want, if it's doing the things you want, I get it, right? So whereas the older generation thinks like, what are you, nuts? You're supposed to have a team. So that, okay, so that's a huge part. But the other part of it that is not talked about enough is money and politics. And so Democrats have been corrupted, unfortunately, almost as much as Republicans. 
So millennials are disgusted by that. So when you have these standard politicians and they take their donor money here, great example right here in California, Diane Feinstein uh, goes to a couple of town halls fairly recently. They, everybody's wants Medicare for all. Uh, she says, no, I'm, we're not ready for it at this stage. She's 84, by the way. I'm looking forward to the stage where she's ready for it. And then a week later, after the town hall, goes and meets with healthcare donors and collects a ton of money from them and then does exactly what they want. So it's not a mystery. I, TV never talks about it. But online, we know. We can track your donors. We know who you work for. We know you're full of crap. And so you want me to be on Team Democrat when 80% of the, the guys on that team are totally corrupted. So millennials are going to go, no, I'm not interested in that team. Now, I'm a progressive. So, and I believe in being practical and pragmatic and getting results. So I don't think a third party is the answer. I think the answer is board the Democratic ship, take it over, throw the old guys overboard, and it's now our ship. And then all of a sudden, hey, we got a nice aircraft carrier here. Funny how one of those old guys, Bernie Sanders, of course, you're uh -huh. a huge proponent, was one of the, the change agents in this most recent election. And, you know, he was campaigning not necessarily even to win. I, I think in, in parts of his, uh, his campaign and afterwards, he certainly said, you know, I'm going up against Hillary in the Clinton dynasty, right? But what I was trying to do is impact the future of the party to get people to think about the fact that, you know, we need to take different stands. We need to make healthcare and, and college education more of a right and accessible to more people. But also at the same time that I don't need big money to do that, right? That he raised so much money from individuals, not without the, the help of super PACs, and showed that there's a different way to approach a younger audience and engage them in politics. Yeah, it's a great irony that one of the oldest senators is the one leading the charge for change. He hasn't changed at all, actually. It's just that the times changed around him and made him this new, you know, I don't want to say prophet, that's way too strong, but this <laughs> leader of this movement. And so, and again, the millennials can sense that authenticity. And so on this exact issue that we're talking about here, when the older crowd keeps saying, Bernie's not even a Democrat, millennials going, yes, <laughs> like that's supposed to be a turnoff and they don't understand why that's a turnoff. They view that as a positive. If the Democrats are supposed to be the progressive party, why don't we make them be the progressive party? That's my attitude. Yeah. And what do you think is going to happen to the Republicans? Well, uh, not a big fan. <laughs> so I think that party will eventually be obliterated. There's two factors there as well. If the Democrats are 80% corrupted, the Republicans are 99.8% corrupted. There's Walter Jones out of North Carolina, who I don't agree with on 95% of the issues, but is an honest guy. Stand up guy. Yeah, and he's a real conservative. And those... Hopefully, the Walter Jones of the world will come back and we'll have real policy debates, mm -hmm. right? He's literally the only honest Republican I can name in national politics. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I might disagree with him more than I disagree with some of the others, but at least he's an honest actor. So if you take money out of politics, that doesn't mean conservatives are going to lose on those issues. We're going to have a good policy fight and they'll win probably about half the time, right? But it does mean these current Republicans will all lose because mm -hmm. they all serve their donors and not the voters. And the second thing is, they're a party based in 1955. So this whole thing about not wanting to respect LGBT rights, for example, are you kidding me? Millennials are 80% progressive. Every year, that position becomes political suicide. Honestly, some of them still hate black people. So yeah, Trump won, but it's the last gasp of the angry white man. And so they are on borrowed time. You're not going to win elections in the future hating black men and gays and Mexicans and Muslims and immigrants, like this is the last election you'll ever win with that old strategy of hatred. Dear God, let's hope so. Yeah. yeah. Do you think they'll move back to more traditional conservative roots or embrace more of a libertarianism perspective? I can't wait to see what party emerges after we get money out of politics, because mm -hmm. that is going to be really interesting. They might go further right wing in the beginning, then they might find their center and it might not be our center, right? But at least it'll be honest and it'll be a great conversation. And for the younger Republicans, if that party even exists as a name, but whatever that party is, because it'll, of course, be a right wing party, uh, they'll, of course, have a much bigger libertarian strand. 
So you talk about, you know, the influence of money in politics. And for now, the Supreme Court has ruled that money is speech. How do we change that? Is it going to have to be a policy change to overturn that and declare that, you know, we, we need to take the money out of politics and level the playing field? So it has to be an amendment. There's no question about it because you have to go over the Supreme Court's head because they could just reverse it. You could, you could do any policy at the legislative level and the Supreme Court can say, no, I believe in these fantasies that corporations are human beings. I mean, if you pause for a second, that sounds so preposterous to 99.9% of people. Only the people in power have agreed to that insane fantasy. So they're not human beings. They don't have inalienable rights. They, they were not endowed by their creator with those rights. We're their creators. They should only have the rights that we have agreed that they have. They're at this point, they're out of control robots. Okay, so that's one part of it. The other part of it is that money is speech. And there is, as Justice Kennedy wrote in Citizens United, there's not even a perception of corruption if people take millions of dollars from private interests. Are you, again, no real American believes that. When you take millions of dollars from private interests, you are going to serve private interests. Everybody knows that, except the people in power have agreed to that fiction because it serves their purpose. Only way to defeat that, because unfortunately the Supreme Court on that issue has become completely corrupted, is to get an amendment. So by hook or by crook, there is no way we are not going to get an amendment because 93% of Americans believe that politicians represent their donors or their voters. If it takes a revolution, then fine, we'll have a revolution. I mean, a political one. And by the way, last thing on that, the founding fathers were literally revolutionaries. So they built revolution into the document. So to tie it into what we started talking about, they were the original disruptors. I mean, they did disruption on a historic scale. And the document that they built, which is the greatest document, in my opinion, in world history, the United States Constitution, was built for disruption. So the amendment process was built to disrupt the document itself. Mm -hmm. And if you go back to the Federalist Papers, they said every generation must amend this document. Otherwise, it'll get old. It'll get stale. It'll get outdated. They knew all the way back then. And, and they even gave two paths to an amendment. One is through Congress, but they were had amazing foresight and said sometimes Congress will get too corrupted. So we empower the people. Yes. Mm -hmm. And so they allow the states to propose a convention that gives you an amendment. I started a group called Wolfpack, okay, to defeat all other super PACs. And then <laughs> and the objective there is to get a convention to propose an amendment to get money out. And that kind of brings us full circle back to the power of media. And we've talked a little bit about television, of course, online video, but what is the role of journalism in helping to cause change and, and bring more of this thoughts, you know, to the world? And, and in fact, at a time when journalism is struggling, right? The business model is going through a fundamental evolution paradigm shift. How do we help restore the, the truth in journalism, but also, you know, the business model so it can be sustainable as a check against our political system. Yeah. So a couple of answers there. First, the right-wing attacks the media, in my opinion, because they want to tear down anything that brings you facts. So look at the, the strand that runs through it. Media is bad. They bring you facts. Scientists are now bad because they bring you facts. Professors are bad because they bring you facts. So their idea is to tear all that down and replace it with their propaganda. That corporations are humans, that money does not corrupt, politicians at least, right? Et cetera, et cetera, right? There is no climate change, yeah, yeah. From a left-wing perspective, I don't want to tear down the media. I want to help fix the media. So I, I go to, you know, so I wear several different hats. You know, as you can tell, I'm political. Uh, I have a business hat and I also have a media hat. And, and I go to a lot of journalism conferences and I tell them, guys, you have to go back to the original standard. They did a trick on you guys. They pretended the standard was neutral and it's not neutral. It's objective. And let me explain what the difference is. So if you did it in a sports reporting, it'd be hilarious. Neutral is the Cavaliers and the Celtics played the first NBA game last night. The Cavs say they won. The Celtics say they won. <laughs> I guess we'll never know. It was close there. Yeah. <laughs> Objective journalism is it was a close game. It went back and forth. Hayward broke his leg. And at the end, the Cavaliers won. That's objective. Now, you can do that in politics. The Republicans did break the record on filibusters. That's a fact. Uh, Saddam Hussein did not personally attack us on 9-11. That's a fact. Weapons of mass destruction was disputed. Not a fact. Okay. 
And back, look, with hindsight, you could say, oh, they were wrong. But at the time, that was disputed. But it was not disputed that he didn't attack us on 9-11. So when Dick Cheney came out and made up stuff about it, it was the job of journalists to be objective and not say Cheney says this and other people say that. Say, no, there is no connection. And so they fundamentally misled our country, not just the Cheneys, but the media. 70% of Americans, when we went to war with Iraq, thought Saddam Hussein was personally responsible for 9-11. If I thought that, I would have wanted to go into Iraq. But I knew the reality, and the media failed us. So I want to help fix the media. And if we do, and they actually do objective stuff, and by the way, there's nothing wrong with perspective. I do perspective journalism. I give people the facts, then I give people an, an opinion slash analysis of those facts. And we separate those out, right? And there's room for both of those. But if you do that job right, you might also regain the trust of your readers, your viewers, and hence be able to survive as a business. Because remember, again, going back to our first topic, the new culture is based on authenticity. And if you just do top down, hey, I'm trying to appeal to politicians, so I don't want to anger Republicans or Democrats, so I'm going to call everything neutral, that's not authentic. It's never going to work online and you're going to go out of business. Mm -hmm. If you go to hard-hitting objective journalism, people will respect you for that. They'll pay for that. And now look at New York Times. There was a great article I read the other day saying that Harvey Weinstein's story was buried by the New York Times in 2004, maybe because two-thirds of their of their revenue came from advertising. Miramax was a giant advertiser at the time. Now, only 37% of the revenue comes from advertising, two-thirds comes from subscription, and all of a sudden, we've got hard-hitting stories exposing Harvey Weinstein mm -hmm. and serving the audience. Yeah. That's the correct business model. Uh, let's close out real quick with some rapid-fire questions. What are some books or resources that have kind of influenced you or shaped your worldview? Uh, books? Books, resources, yeah. podcasts, anything? Yeah. yeah. Just real quick, it's a recent one, but I, I loved it and I recommend to everybody Devil's Chessboard by David Talbot, who uh, was the founder of Salon. And it's the story of the CIA and Alan Dulles. And it is mind blowing. Uh, if you want to know what actually happened and who the CIA was serving, it's carefully laid out there. And you see how corporate America was actually in charge. And so, and I don't want people to take things the wrong way. There's wonderful corporations. And I say it, and yesterday at a very liberal crowd, I said, look, I'll say it for the billionth time, I'm a capitalist. I believe that Nike is better at making shoes than the government would be. I believe McDonald's is making better at making hamburgers. There's, but we have to know what each part belongs in. So having private prisons is insane because we're incentivizing taking freedom away from Americans. And then we're creating a profit motive around it. So what, what he lays out in the book is if you have banana companies, for example, who are dictating foreign policy, you're not serving the interests of democracy and our American ideals and the American people. So I highly recommend it because it's eye-opening in that sense. What's coming next? If you had to make three predictions about the online video or digital media industry, what do you see? Well, the great quote by Mark Twain is change happens really gradually and then all of a sudden. At some point, the TV stations are going to fall into the water. And it'll be that big of a crater like the music industry? Yes. Wow. Absolutely. So everybody keeps pretending that if you just shuffle those chairs enough, that the ship won't sink. But, I mean, ESPN has lost 12 million subscribers in 12 months. And they're the tip of the spear because they have the most subscribers. And who's going to pay $150 for this giant package uh, for channels you don't watch. Who's going to watch Seinfeld in the middle? Why would they watch it in the middle? They would, of course, they're going to go and find it where it starts from the beginning. So TV's clock is way more expedited than the rest of the industry thinks. Everybody gets it, but they don't get the severity of it, in my opinion. So that was one. <laughs> Two is, is this drive for authenticity is finally going to become clearer and, and dominate. And so right now, even in digital, a lot of the producers are from the old school and a lot of the companies are run from people from the old school. So they still do really polished products that don't do that well online. They don't understand the value of characters. And so they're doing just cookie cutter widgets. And that's not what, what people want. They want authentic characters. So that will begin to dominate. And then, you know, 
You heard the rest. The, the third would be, again, it's partly industry, partly politics, that we will have a revolution in politics. Driven by the media. That's right. Mm-hmm. And, and then that will affect the, the, how the media uh, covers politics. Mm-hmm. So right now, the establishment's number one show is Morning Joe. Almost everyone in Washington and New York that's in the power circles watches Morning Joe and almost no one else. At some point, when they realize that none of the voters are actually watching Morning Joe, there's going to be a giant paradigm shift there. So that's coming too. Now, obviously, you've been doing Young Turks for 15 years now. It's your passion, your dream. But if you had to start from scratch, looking at the online video industry today, and we're building a new business, what would you do? I'm so biased. (laughs) (laughs) I do exactly this. Uh, No, look, in all seriousness, whatever it is that I'm doing, meaning if it's not news, it could be entertainment, it could be anything else. I would build characters. I base it on authenticity. And, you know, let me actually tell you our governing philosophy and whatever you do, I think that's would be my main takeaway, which is audience first. It sounds like it's an easy thing to say. Maybe a lot of people would say that, but they don't mean it. And it comes with heavy costs. So understand what you're getting into because that means advertisers are not first. Corporate parents are not first. Politicians, celebrities, athletes, whoever you need access to are not first. Audience is first. And whatever I built, I would build based on that philosophy mm-hmm. because you will win the crowd. Once you win the crowd, you will get access anyway. You will get advertisers anyway, but you have to be patient and play the long game to actually win over the audience first. Phenomenal advice. So where can people find out more about you and more about TYT? So thank you for asking. <laughs> TYTnetwork.com obviously is our website, a lot of folks watch us on YouTube, youtube.com slash the young Turks, uh, facebook.com slash the young Turks. So great partners. If you're on Pluto and Zumo and Hulu and Twitter, please check us out. But those are the, the heavyweights. Fantastic. Well, Jenk, this has been so much fun. Such a wide ranging conversation covering your background, news and politics, the business, media, etc. This was a blast. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. I love the conversation. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.